0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by my great friend, Derone Spielman. Jerome was born in Michigan and committed an act of religious heresy in 1996 when he transferred from Michigan State to the University of Michigan. We will certainly get into that. Shortly after graduating college from the University of Michigan, Derone made Aliyah and served in the IDF during the second Intifada. Shortly thereafter, Daron became one of the founders and leaders of what Erica and I regard as the single most special place in Israel, the most important place in the world, perhaps, Ir David. And I'm not going to discuss much about Ir David uh, because I'm going to ask Daron to do it before we get into his chosen passage. So Daron, welcome to the Rabbi's Husband. Mark,
1: it is so good to see you.
0: Why did you go from Michigan State to
1: Michigan? Well, it's uh, the beginning of my heresy, like you said. In order to eventually become a Bolchuvah, I had to realize what it was to go through enormous pain and betray those before me, like my family, and go to a new family. But uh, in seriousness, Michigan State was a great opportunity. It was uh, I loved what I was doing. But as my interest in Israel grew and my interest in Judaism grew, University of Michigan is really the place where ideas are floating around. Today, it's really the center of a, a lot of BDS, a lot of, a, a lot of unfortunate movements. At that time, though, there was a really a renaissance of Jewish life. And the moment I went to the University of Michigan, my trajectory was really on course to move to Israel. And it prepared me for a lot of what I would face, viscerally prepared me for what I would face because the turning point that brought me to the city of David was really a meeting that I had many years later with a woman I'd known at the University of Michigan. And so it really set me on course.
0: What was that meeting?
1: I was with the IDF. It was before I was an officer and I was in Bethlehem in during the, the siege in the Church of the Nativity. This is 2001? This is 2002, March. I remember it. It was March because unfortunately, one of my friends had been killed. Two of my friends were killed in an attack at Hebrew University. And the IDF chased those terrorists, and a number of other terrorists into the Church of the Nativity. I Meaning the terrorists fled to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and took hostages, and the IDF were in hot pursuit. I was called into Bethlehem to cover the event as a representative a spokesman for the IDF. So at that point, you were no longer an infantry, you were in the spokesman's office. I was in the spokesman's office, exactly. And I was on my way to becoming an officer, and I was also on my way to be getting married. And it was a very, very dangerous time. Buses had been blowing up left and right. Again, two of my Friends were killed at Hebrew University. And I find myself within a matter of hours. We know how close Bethlehem is to the center of Jerusalem. It took me 15 minutes to drive to the checkpoint in my car. And then I just suited up in armor and and went in. And I'm standing in, ironically, the Bethlehem Museum of Peace and Culture, which had been transformed into an IDF barracks right in front of the Church of the Nativity. And there was an open plaza between us and the church. And there were sharpshooters shooting back and forth. And it was a morning. And I was. Down at the the bottom level, and all of a sudden we hear screams. And I look outside at this this open area, and I see a group of people carrying bags running towards the church. So instinctively, I and the other soldiers on the ground floor they were paratroopers we ran into the plaza. Literally, bullets are being shot over our heads. Later on, we understood uh, what was happening. I'll tell you in a minute. But we tackled these people. I have to say that about twenty of them made it inside the church. We tackled around fifteen.
0: Why were they going into the church?
1: They were trying to break the siege. They were trying to help the terrorists in the church by providing them with food and cell phones. And they were trying to give them a, a link to the outside world with food. We tackle them. We're sitting on the, on the ground. Bullets are whizzing. And I look at the group and they're all speaking to the leader of the group who was sitting at my feet. It was a young woman. And I was saying to her, the commander said, speak to her in English and tell them immediately to get inside this building. So I start speaking. And they're not listening to me. They're trying to protest us and link arms. And I look at this woman and I go into shock. And I realize that I know this woman. The last time I saw her was six years before at the University of Michigan, 1996, just before graduation. She and I co led the Arab Israeli cultural evening at the University of Michigan. Her name was Hawaita Araf. I was so stunned. She'd even gone to Shabbat dinners with me, wore a dress and came to Shabbat dinners with me at the Hillel House. We were really good friends. Six years later, she's leading this group. I arrest her. But at this moment, I couldn't even speak. And finally, I caught my breath and I said, Hoeda, I need you to move inside this building. And she looked up and she identified that it was me. She started to cry, at which point her group lost their resolve. We very quickly moved them inside the building. And to make a long story a little bit less long... Over the next 10 hours, I was in charge of interrogating the group and getting the diplomatic details and pressing diplomatic sanctions on the group. And Hawayda and I had a chance to talk. And the first words out of her mouth were, you're like a Nazi dressed in that uniform. What's happened to you? You're oppressing my people. You're conquering my people, occupying my people. And I very calmly looked at her. I said, Hawayda, the last time I saw you was at a Shabbat dinner in Hillel just before we graduated. And we had that joint Arab-Israeli dialogue. What has happened to you? And we we managed to speak. And what was amazing to me, Mark, was there was no point of connection, sadly, between Hawait and I. She felt like we should return all of her refugees to their original homes from the borders of 1948. She felt that the state of Israel had absolutely no right to be where it is. And eventually Hawaida was deported along with the rest of the group, but the thought in my conversation with Hawaii, I could not get it out of my mind. This was a sensible woman educated at the University of Michigan, who no longer felt any justification whatsoever for the state of Israel and was leading what became the BDS movement. She later led the flotilla in Gaza. We arrested her again, but she absolutely had no place in her consciousness why the state of Israel should exist. And as a result of this, I ended up turning to a friend. I was working in high tech at the time. I was serving in the army at this point in reserves. I was on a reserve course, was no longer an infantry. And I was working in high tech in I was debating, should I go in the army full time? And he said, listen, let's take a break. Let's go to Jerusalem. Just take a walk around. Let's tour. Let's catch some fresh air. And that eventually led to my meeting with Davidila, who was the founder of the city of David, Davidla Berry in Yehuda Mali, and uh, a relationship that grew in which they eventually offered me about a month later. They said, we have a project. If It's in its infancy. It's going to change the state of Israel. We want you to join us.
0: I have been going to Ir David where I first met you in 2004, and we've been there together since 2004, and it has grown and changed and developed each trip. The trip might be two months after the previous one, but the developments are completely apparent. So tell us about Ir David, where it is right now. I mean, as you said, the early 2000s, it was a parking lot. So what is it right now, both literally and what you hope it'll become into the future? So the city of David, Mark, uh,
1: for your listeners who don't know, is
0: actually the
1: biblical site of Jerusalem. When we open up the Bible and we read about King David, it's actually the city of David that we're speaking about. And ironically, it is outside the old city walls of today, because when the Turks built those walls, the city of David wasn't included. Therefore, it took many, many years to uncover. And from, I would say, the early 1900s, we already had an idea and understanding that ancient Jerusalem was here. When I came to the City of David in 2002, again, we were kind of a a small group of renegade people who believed in this project. It was against the grain of everything that was happening in Israel at the time. Israel was going through the Second Intifada. There was still hope for Oslo. The City of David is located in East Jerusalem. And therefore, the project, it just, people would look at us and say, what are you doing in the middle of this area called Silwan, digging for this ancient city? And over the course of the last 18 years that I've been there and 16 years since I've known you, The city of David has been recognized as the most important archaeological site in the state of Israel. But even more than that, when we uncover something from the city of David, and it just happened a few weeks ago, we uncovered a a seal, a small imprint that had a name on it, Natan Melech, the servant of the king. What the amazing thing about the city of David is you open up the book of Kings, chapter 22, and you see Natan Melech, the servant of the king, appears in the in the second book of Kings, chapter 22, and his entire life story. And you look around where you found this clay seal and you realize the Bible's unfolding in front of your eyes. It's a paradigm shift for people throughout the world. It's the place that literally the Bible comes alive.
0: That's what we've experienced. And and every visitor that we've both sent and met has experienced it as exactly that. This is the place where the Bible comes alive. And it is just such a privilege to be able to walk in those steps today and to be able to see it literally blossom before our eyes. And uh, it's just the most special place in Israel. So when you started the parking lot, how many people come a year now?
1: So when we started, when I got there, there were 18,000 people a year, uh, which we thought was just uh, an incredible number of people. Uh, Last year, we finished at a million people per year. We had a million in 2019. We were on trajectory this year to be at a 1.2 million. And based on the infrastructure that we're creating, we're expecting the city of David to get, let's say, by 2025, three to four million people. Again, putting COVID out of the picture, we're planning on tripling the site. And that's where it's heading. I mean, that's where the city of David's heading. People are now coming to the state of Israel in order to visit the city of David.
0: Well, it's the most important and special place in Israel. So I'm I'm not surprised. So I would just say, if if any Listener wants to learn about the city of David. A previous rabbi's husband guest is Eric Stackelbeck. And he had a terrific uh, series of episodes on his TV show, The Watchman, the city of David's top 10 finds that prove the biblical authenticity of Jerusalem. So just Google Eric Stackelbeck, uh, Ear David, and watch any of the 10 videos that that are interesting to you. So let's get into your chosen text, which actually um, is not from the prophets that referenced Ear David, but is from Genesis 33. Absolutely, Mark. You know, I, I've had a
1: few days to to really think about my most important passage, and I'll read the passage, and then we'll give the backstory because I think the backstory is really what brings it to life. So my, the passage I chose is that Asab really says to Jacob at this point in time after their meeting, "Let's go together to Seir."
0: Before that, Jacob is concluding a two-decade-long exile from his brother, and he realizes that he can't continue his mission unless he first acknowledges his past, which is confronting his brother, and he's concerned that his brother Esau is going to murder him.
1: That's precisely it. And it's you have all this drama leading up to this moment. And I think at that moment in time when Esau reaches out and hugs Yaakov, according both to the basic reading, the shot reading of the text, the simple reading of the text, and to a number of commentators, that is a real moment. Even in the early Tanaim even the Mishnah period, it was identified that that was a moment of outflowing of emotion between the two brothers. And I think if we can put ourselves in Yaakov's shoes, he'd been carrying around for 22 years that his brother wants to murder him. And as you said, now his brother is moved to tears and loves
0: him. So Jacob is expecting, and he actually prepares for an encounter where he's going to get killed and maybe his wives and children can survive. Instead, he doesn't get a sword, he gets a hug.
1: He gets a huge hug. And following the hug, I mean, if we just put ourselves in Yaakov's shoes, I feel the real challenge now comes at this moment. Psychologically, Yaakov has been transformed. His brother has gone from being a monster into a loving big brother. Yaakov, I, I would think, his defenses would have been completely down. And here Asaph comes up with the following statement. He says, Yaakov, let us go together. Let us travel and go. This is chapter 33, line 12. Let us travel together. I will proceed alongside you.
0: Let's go live our families together. And I'll go alongside you, not you'll go alongside me. In other words, saying, Jacob, you could be the leader. Yeah, you're the leader. You're the leader. Let's head towards Seir, my capital, but you're the big one. I recognize
1: it. And right, it's it's actually an amazing insight, Mark. I actually never, until you just said that, it didn't really dawn on me the depth of that line. It, It very much goes along with the reading of Aesop says, let's go to Seir, my capital. I'll share everything with you. Our families will live together. And Yaakov begins to kind of make a few excuses. He says, listen, I've got young kids. I've got you know a lot of cattle here. I can't move at your pace. Go ahead of me. But Aesop doesn't lit up. He says, no, 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 no. I'll send my people with you to take care of you along the way. And I'll assign them to you. And Yaakov turns to him and says, to what end? To what purpose? Let me just have favor in your eyes. I'm happy to see your eyes. And the next line, I think, is one of the most important lines in the Bible. Asav starts on his way towards Seir. In a minute, we'll talk about where Seir is, but Yaakov journeys to a different city called Sukkot. And that is it. Asav thinks Yaakov's following him to Seir. Yaakov said in a previous statement, wait for me until I meet you at Seir. But now Yaakov stops at Sukkot, which geographically speaking was around 40 miles from the meeting place, south. They're meeting in northern Israel, just over the, the Jordan River.
0: Yeah, where is Seir
1: in Israel? Okay, so Seir is in between the southern part of the Dead Sea and Aqaba. Seir is all the way in the south of Jordan. So they're starting all the way up in the north. Aesab's capital was around 200 miles south in the mountains of Seir. Today, it's called, we know it. It's, an, it's called Seir in Arabic. Jabal al-Seira. Jabal means mountain of Seir. It's still called that way by the Arabs today. You can see it on the internet. Jabal el-Seir, it's a, it's a known location. So he heads down 200 miles, but Yaakov stops short only 40 miles.
0: Do we know where Sukkot is? Yeah, we know where
1: Sukkot is. There's a spring called Ein Sukkot. It's pretty much southeast of the Canarit of the Sea of Galilee. Matter of fact, when you're driving north towards the Sea of Galilee, there's a sign that points to Ein Sukkot, to the spring of Sukkot. Sukkot was just over there. There are archeological excavations that we think we know where Sukkot is. And Yaakov makes a break with his brother and it's a conscious break. And I feel like this is a moment where we really have to go into Yaakov's mind. It must have taken so much strength at that moment after reuniting with your brother. He loves you. There's an opportunity to blend your families together. But Yaakov, in an incredible stroke of foresight, understands, yes, I've made peace with my brother, but I'm not going to raise my family with my brother's family we are two different people and yaakov clearly inherits this from before him because as we know what happened just before this entire scenario was that jacob leah and rachel and their children are living with lavan right Laban is yaakov's uncle he is the most elderly person in abraham's family jacob is living there and jacob realizes he has to leave Laban. And that's the first break, is that he says, wait a second, I can't live with Levon. I have to leave Levon. And he turns and asks Rachel and Leah, what should I do? This is what Hashem's done for me. They command him. They say, we have no inheritance in our father's house. Whatever God has told you to do, you must do. Jacob has just left Abraham's family behind. He is now truly the only descendant. There's a break between the old family, the historical family of Abraham and Sarah, Mesopotamia, it's the last we hear of them. They're out of the picture. Jacob then proceeds alone to create his own family, the children of Israel. I think it's by no coincidence after he breaks with Levon and they create a pile of stones and it's a boundary in the Bible. Right after that is when Jacob is anointed Israel by the angel. He is now his own nation. He then comes in and he faces Aesop, but he maintains his nation. he realizes in order to be Israel, I cannot leave my children with the children of Esau. And he musters that strength, I think, in an incredible lesson to the Jewish people. And he says, I've made peace, but I am different. I will live alone. I will protect my generations.
0: So he tricks them, right? He does. That's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is which his tricking of his father was how he got into exile to begin with. He and his mother conspire this is the, not the only interpretation, but the conventional interpretation. He and his mother conspire to trick their father into thinking that Jacob is really Esau and to giving him the birthright and the blessing.
1: And ironically, Jacob is called the man of, right, of the three symbols in Judaism. It's ironic. Abraham is chesed, kindness, and Yitzchak is strength, and Jacob
0: is truth. But he continues to trick. He doesn't come straight out and say to Esau, I love you. But they're all different kinds of love. My love for you is not the kind where our families can live together as though we're the same, as though we have a shared destiny. We have different destinies. We can be allies. We can be friends. We can love each other, but we got to be different. He does not say that. Instead, he tricks him.
1: I think it's a very good point, Mark. And and I think that we can see within his own children, right? I mean, Yaakov comes to inherit this kind of trickery within his own children who also trick their father. And Jacob pays a very heavy price for this deception.
0: Isn't the sequel to this story of Jacob telling Esau, I'll meet you in Mount Seir, but then he tricks him and doesn't meet him. Isn't the sequel in Deuteronomy? Because Deuteronomy 2, one, this is Moses talking. This is hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years later, the problem's not resolved. We turned and journeyed to the wilderness towards the Sea of Reeds as Hashem spoke to me, and we circled Mount Seir for many days. In other words, They can't go to the promised land unless you go through Mount Seir.
1: Exactly, and he's not allowed to go.
0: And then it says, Hashem said to me saying, enough of your circling this mountain, turn yourself northward. So the implication is, well, you tell me this is geographically, right? But the trip from Egypt to Israel should be about 11 days on foot. Then it took us 40 years, right? And it's because of this, enough of your circling Mount Seir. Wow, that is incredible. You're saying the circling is a
1: metaphor for not getting to the point.
0: Well, that seems to be what it's saying in Deuteronomy. Is It's Mount Seir specifically and exclusively that's referenced where God says, enough of your circling of this mountain. In other words, because your brother, Je- this would be one interpretation, of course, there could be 70 interpretations. Because Moses, your ancestor Jacob, did not reconcile properly with Esau, you've just been circling this mountain forever. And I'm not going to let you go to the promised land unless you first go to Mount Seir. I
1: love that interpretation, Mark, and I think it's not only metaphorical, it makes enormous sense in the basic reading of the text, because we also see the sages cued into this, that Seir is the ultimate standoff between Jacob and Aesop. It says, in the Talmud itself, that in the end of days, the ultimate, ultimate battle between the children of Yaakov and the children of Aesop, and the children of Aesop are Amalek, right? Aesop is the progenitor. The Amalek is what comes out of Aesop. His, his grandson is Amalek. That's Midrash, right? No, no, that's in the text. Asab's son is, marries Timnah. His son marries Timnah. And Timnah gives birth to Amalek. So it's directly in the text itself. And so the ultimate standoff, according to the Talmud, is going to be on Mount Seir. And, and what some of the commentators say, and this is, just a, I think, a fascinating way of looking at what truth means in Jacob's family. Truth in Jacob's family is not what you said, and it's not what maybe you and I call truth, which let's put it on the table and let's discuss. Truth in Jacob's family is understanding what the path is and kind of using deception but making sure they follow the path. Meaning Rebecca, Rivka really felt that Yaakov was the future. She saw Yaakov as the future. She wasn't able to come out and say it to Yitzchak. Yaakov knew his children were the future, but he wasn't able to say it to Esau. And when he deceives him and says, I'll meet you in Seir, the commentary in the Bible, in the Tractate of Ovadazara, Zara, says what Yaakov meant was, again, this is the commentary, at the end of days, my descendants will face your descendants in Seir. And then we will see what happens. But Yaakov wasn't able to do that.
0: Perhaps one textual reading could be, this is no way, Jacob, to treat your estranged brother. If you have a problem with your estranged brother, if you can't share a future, if you can't have a destiny together, got it. You might be right. In fact, Jacob, you probably are right because we know what kind of guy Esau was from? How he behaved with the bowl of food that he was going to make his father, and all that. So you don't have the shared destiny. But this is not how you treat your brother. You don't trick him. You don't effectively lie to him. You don't say I'll meet you in Seir and stop in Sukoth. Imagine Esau. He's waiting in Seir for how how long, expecting Jacob to come, where Jacob has stopped forty miles away and is not coming. The poor guy probably waited. The poor guy who was much stronger but agreed not to harm Jacob, but instead embraced him. Now he's waiting for, I don't know, weeks, months, years for Jacob to come, but he's never coming. And I think what we learned in Deuteronomy is that's no way to treat your brother. Enough circling the mountain. Fascinating, Mark. It just, you're saying stay it directly
1: on the table. It may be in this case, it could have been done. I'm thinking back, if we look back at the line where Jacob inherited this approach, it begins with Sarah. It goes all the way back to Sarah. Sarah, of course, makes the first break. There's almost like a distilling of the Jewish people, right? Sarah is the one who says, and Abraham doesn't like it. But Sarah says, you've got to send away Ishmael. You've got to leave Yitzhak alone. Abraham doesn't like it. And God has to say, listen to Sarah's word. So Abraham begrudgingly, but Sarah sees it and she does it. Then it leads, of course, to Rebecca. And like we just said, Rebecca can't do it. She
0: doesn't say it straight. She tricks Yitzhak. Well, now, Rebecca and her husband, Isaac, Never have a conversation that we see until the trick is over. That's the first dialogue I believe that Rebecca and Isaac ever have is after the trick. Now, Rebecca is probably the heroine of the Bible, but, you know, but the, the way to handle this is not to trick your husband. Have a conversation with him. Just say that there's nothing more important for both of us than transmission. But Esau can't be the transmitter. It's hmm. got to be Jacob. But she never has that conversation. Instead, she tricks, which leads to a disaster
1: very interesting unless there's a conversation there that, that we don't see very that possible. is very very interesting and and look you know yitzhak is blinded i think it's also a very very important you know notion kind of one thing that we see throughout this entire text is this love this very natural love of the father for his son abraham for is- ishmael and isaac for esau and it, it takes this kind of almost i don't know if it would have worked I don't know if Rebecca, I mean, maybe, maybe you're correct. Maybe she should have, but you know, maybe he would have said no. And then he would have caught on. He would have quickly, you know, I don't know what Rebecca was thinking. She might've felt like, I've got no choice, but to do this. She may have
0: thrown all our cards in. Very interesting. But the chances of the trickery working were pretty low. Now it worked kind of, but the chances of success were still low. So would the chances of a direct conversation have been higher low. I don't know. It seems to me that would have been better than the trickery and certainly more durable Isaac was a reasonable guy. He could have been reasoned with and said, Esau, who will trade his birthright for a bowl of soup, cannot be trusted to carry on the Jewish people from here to eternity. (laughs) Open communication. Uh, So Rebecca, who's again a heroine, but all heroines in the Bible have flaws. She models for her son, the lack of open communication. Then her son extrapolates that and does not communicate openly with his twin brother that were in Deuteronomy. And God says, enough circling.
1: You know, it's interesting, Mark, I hear what you're saying about putting on the table, but I think there is one exception. And here, this kind of deception leads to diplomacy, where Yaakov's deception is inherited by Joseph as diplomacy. Joseph is the ultimate, ultimate diplomat of the Bible, right? I mean, he wants his family to live safely. He welcomes them in Egypt. He wants to protect them. Kind of, again, he grew up knowing he wasn't mixed with Aesop's kids. So he gets to Egypt. He's like, how do I protect this family? I've got to put them in Goshen in the middle of nowhere. And he knows he can't say it directly to
0: Pharaoh, right? He, and he also tricks his brothers earlier with, with the greatest trickery of them all. When he take with Benjamin in the sack, and he's he's not straightforward about who he is and who they are and how he acknowledges it. He makes them earn that acknowledgement at the pain of his father. At enormous pain, enormous pain. But
1: here we see something that kind of goes, you know, you can follow it through Jewish leadership and other leadership. There is a very fine line between diplomacy. And deception. I hear what you're saying. In Joseph's side, he goes into diplomacy twice. Once with carving out an area for his brothers, the second is fulfilling Jacob's wish of burying him in Israel. He uses enormous diplomacy. But I really think, you know, if we look today, you know, we were talking about the Second Intifada before. A lot of these messages are this kind of Jacobian deception slash diplomacy is really, really a lesson for today because there are times when it might be hard to say something but you need enormous strength. You know, I remember if we look back at the Second Intifada, I, I would almost parallel it with what happened. The Oslo Accords were very, very similar to Jacob and Esau. You know, I moved to Israel while all this was going on. Overnight, Israel was convinced that an enemy we had been fighting for decades wanted peace with us. We saw a White House lawn agreement between Arafat, Yitzhak Rabin, may rest in peace, and Bill Clinton. And there was almost like this shattering of fear in one moment, Israel, in 1993, 94, 5, six, all the way up in the 2nd and 5 in 2000, our enemy, our neighbors, the Palestinians, whatever you want to call them, they actually want peace with us. And here, I feel like the defense of the state of Israel completely went down, meaning there was a rationale no longer took any place. And the ideal was, let's kind of ignore all the intel we're getting. Let's ignore everything else. We're going to make peace at any cost. And It was not Jacob's ideal of separating his children despite his love for Asaph. If we look at the deed, it was Israel saying, wait a second, we're all in. You know, I spoke to Boogie Yalon, who was the commander of intelligence for the army. And he said that he said to Rabin, and afterwards he said to Perez, all the intel shows that Arafat is engaging and planning all the terrorism we're experiencing. But everybody was so blown away by the defensive going down that they were not able to acknowledge that moment. And I feel like there's a real parallel here. It'd be like Jacob saying to his family, okay, let's move with Asaph. But no, he holds them back. And I was thinking in in today's day and age, if we compare, let's say that was an unsuccessful Jacobian ideal, Israel today, you and I are speaking, and I know you've spoken with your previous speakers about it. Israel has another opportunity to decide who we are as a people with the Abraham Accords. How are we going to treat these new accords? How are we going to treat the Emirates, Bahrain, and so many others, and eventually maybe even Saudi Arabia? Who are we going to be as a people now that our defenses are somewhat going down? It's another challenge, I feel, for the state of Israel. Can we be who we are and be welcoming and be peaceful and grow a beautiful relationship with, like you're saying, direct diplomacy? Or are we going to kind of just fall in love, lose our edge, and kind of ignore the writing on the wall, like we did with the second Intifada.
0: Well, I think um, the trickery that we see in Genesis is one of the reasons why we need a state of Israel. In other words, when you have your own state, you can be secure. And if you're secure, you can just be forthright and straightforward. Of course, what Jacob did was deeply suboptimal, leaving his brother, and, and, and it didn't go away. In Deuteronomy, this is what God says, enough circling. But When there's a Jewish state, and this is one of the many reasons why there has to be a thriving and strong and prosperous Jewish state. When there's a Jewish state, we can be forthright. We can be direct. We can have incredible relationships with our Gentile friends and allies and grow together with them. Not as one people, as two peoples, but each helping each other as partners and as as allies do. And we see that all over the Bible, too. I mean, Abraham is at his lowest moment when he had basically just given his wife to the Pharaoh. He had just won the war, the four kings and the five kings and out comes King Bera. I think Bera means evil, right? Out comes King Evil to make a deal with Abraham. If Abraham had made a deal with King Bera, with King Evil, the Jewish people are gone. In comes out of nowhere King Melchizedek, who is never heard from before nor since, and reminds Abraham that he is a child of God. And it was the Gentile educating the Jew about his relationship with God. And that allyship between King Melchizedek and Abraham Enable the Jewish people. And there are several, Jethro and Moses, Caleb and Joshua. I think you really
1: hit the nail on the head, Mark. The curve of the Jewish people always
0: vacillates
1: between being who we are as a people and gaining an enormous amount of, with our relationship with our Gentile brothers and sisters. When we cross on one side and we assimilate, we lose our Judaism. And when we go to the other side, we become so insular that we suffocate our Judaism. And I think what you're saying, it's, it's a lesson for the state of Israel diplomatically. And I think as Diaspora Jews, we are able to tread this balance. And maybe you're right now, I mean, because the Diaspora created a shtetl closed mentality. And I understand it. It was all about. But now with the state of Israel, there's a real opportunity here. Uh, I, I love the point you're making. It really affects our Judaism today.
0: Yeah, and I think it's one of the great lessons we can draw from this story. Now, just one question for you from the Hebrew which obviously you know so well, and I don't, unfortunately. Jacob says to Esau, I have enough. In other words, Esau offers him all this stuff and Jacob says, I have enough. And then Moses in Deuteronomy says, quoting God says, enough circling. Are the two enoughs parallel? In other words, are they speaking to each other in the text?
1: It's the same Hebrew word, right? You know, it's fascinating. It's not the same word. The one that appears in Genesis is a positive. It means, yes, kol," I have enough in a very positive sense. Like I have everything I need. When God says it's enough in Deuteronomy, it means it's too much. You need to cease what you're doing. You've got too much. I think if I relate this back to what you were saying, Jacob says, I have enough. And then the deception plays out. And so when we circle back, we went from having enough in a positive sense to doing too much in a negative sense. I mean, I I think that 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 would be the flow following that logic. It's not the same wording. But the sense certainly seems to be much more than a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence. Mark, "Ravlechem" as too much only appears in a few times. It appears when Korach tries to steal. Uh, that's exactly what Korach and Moses say back to each other twice. "Ravlechem, Ravlechem." They each say, "You've got too much. You've got too much." And it's a very powerful word. I never paid attention to it that much. God is really saying, "This is too much."
0: Too much circling. And it's the same Mount Seir. The important thing is it's the same Mount Seir. You've been doing too much circling Mount Seir. So what God is saying is you've been circling Mount Seir for a hundred plus years. Exactly. And according to what you're saying, deal with it now openly. Right. And and deal with it now openly. In other words, I'm not letting you get to the promised land until you deal with it openly. Because Deuteronomy 2, 2 is, this is the prelude to the promised land. These are the the last things you got to do before I'm allowing you into the promised land is go to Mount Seir.
1: You know, it's fascinating hearing this because, Mark, what you're saying, and the person that comes up in my mind is taking a lesson from this, a hard-earned lesson, is none other than King David. King David, again, going back to the city of David, King David obviously has a life where he pays enormously heavy price for deceiving uh, a husband. However, David, he learns to go directly to the point as soon as he's accused, he says the shortest admittance in the entire Torah, Hatati I have sinned to God. And from that point on, he admits his sin directly, chatati l'ashem, two words, I've sinned to God, that's it. There's no BS, there's no walking around the bush. And when it comes to the anointing of Solomon, as opposed to what happened with Isaac and Rebecca and all these other stories, David and Bathsheba agree that Solomon needs to be king. It is a joint decision. And therefore, again, it wasn't easy, but Solomon was absolutely
0: king. He had the blessing of his father, no question. So David and Bathsheba did what Isaac and Rebecca didn't do. Yeah, they put it directly on the table. She said to him,
1: you promised me and God saying, surely Solomon will reign after you. And now his other brother, Adonio, was trying to steal the throne. David's immediate response is, okay, go anoint him.
0: Wow. Well, this is one of the many, many great lessons we learn from the Bible is that one story teaches the next and they all teach us. Absolutely.
1: I've learned so much from you today, Mark. Oh, I've learned from you. Thank you. Understanding the, the nuances of this text, it literally came alive. This is like an ongoing Havruta, and it's just incredible. It's been witnessed by everybody else as well that's listening to this.
0: Oh, well, thank you. So the concluding question always goes from one text, which is the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Melruth's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war, And this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown up person. So, Jerome, in your almost 20 years of pioneering and developing and leading with David the most important place in Israel, what are two things that you've learned about humankind?
1: I have learned, Mark, about humankind, that human beings want to be inspired. The experience of the City of David is almost like a formula to peel off the many layers that our day-to-day problems put around us, problems of work and money and relationships and family. People come with an enormous amount of layers. What the City of David does is it very, very quickly reduces a person back to that original dream they had when they were little, when they looked out the window and saw the moon and wondered what it was and how far away it was and how magical the world was, that magical sense. That is what the City of David produces in people. And people come, adults come. As you know, owners of Fortune 500 companies come. They come and they cry on our shoulder.
0: I mean, I remember you telling me that you had uh, several dozen congressmen come and they were all crying. They were all crying. It was an incredible
1: moment for them. They looked at each other and they were broken down in tears because of the idea, wait, there is something in me I once dreamed about. There is something that inspired me to be who I am. It's not knowing everything. It's something larger than myself and the city of David by showing the Bible and all these people from the Bible and the stories coming alive, everyone, doesn't matter what you own and who you are, we are all important people in a story that is much larger than ourselves and people desperately, Mark need that inspiration. That's the first thing I would say. And the second thing is exactly the quote that you just said to me. There's a child inside every single person and one is connected to the other. It's a childlike beauty. Anyone who has children knows it. The saddest thing is when that kind of wears off the child, when that kind of spark in their eyes, you never want it to go away. If it starts to kind of become clouded over and the two are connected.
0: Well, and it isn't that What we learn about Moses when it says he was uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, he was 120 and his eyes were undimmed and his vigor was unabated. He had those open eyes of a child and consequently he had the vigor of a young man. The fact that he was 120 was functionally irrelevant. Amazing. Absolutely. Well, Jerome, thank you as always for such a fascinating conversation leading from this uh, magnificent passage that you chose. Mark, I loved
1: it. And uh, I invite you next time you're in Israel, when the sky's clear, for you to do your podcast from the city of David. Oh, that would be awesome. And uh, I think your people are going to love it.
0: That is fantastic. Live from the city of David. I cannot wait to say live from the city of David. (laughs) Because again, it's Erica and my favorite place in Israel. We love Israel so much. And this is our favorite place in Israel. To be able to say live from the city of David. I can't wait, God willing. I don't know, maybe in the spring.
1: That would be great. It's a date. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mark. You the God of the breakthrough. If you there's a breakthrough in the house tonight, your hands
0: up If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare. And a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email Daniel at therabbishusband.com.